Well, there you go, folks. It's um, seven o'clock. Just gone past, as a matter of fact. And um, Andrina Forrest and myself running the show, Dreaming the New Dream. And um, tonight's guest is, is someone who just, always the best words to say, spontaneity. Everybody's got a story and, you, and you, they come through different doors and then you just take time to listen. And as a result of just listening, there's a, a great opportunity for myself to introduce our guest to Andrina, and Andrina had a chat, and um, and as as I say, the results history. That's why we've got um, our guest tonight. So um, take it away, Andrina. Yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome. And if you're listening to Dreaming the New Dream uh, anywhere in the world, or listening to the replay, welcome. And today is the 29th of September. We're just heading to the last couple of days of this month. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, today, I have great pleasure to introduce Phil Linden, which um, the connection came through Jeff and business. So thank you, Jeffrey, for introducing Phil. So Phil is a senior leader um, in the Vantage Point Church. Um, he's also a chaplain in the army, and his main focus is helping to improve people's lives on many, many levels. And I'm really looking forward to you, Phil, sharing your story of how you started on this journey. And especially when um, COVID was on and you, you served 8,000 meals a week. And, and I'm sure you've got some really heart stories to share. So welcome and thank you being our, for being our guest this week. Hey, thanks so much, Andrina. Thank you, Jeffrey. And Good evening from where I am to everyone. Good morning to anyone who's watching on the other side of the uh, of the world. It is good to be with you. So thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you. So let's start then. Um, you were raised and born in Melbourne. No, born in born in New Zealand. So, oh, yeah. uh, okay. but I do barrack for the Wallabies. So <laughs> for all the rugby supporters out there, uh, I figure when in Rome, do as the Romans. So I barrack for the Wallabies. But no, moved here to australia when we was when i was seven years old so most of my life is melbourne by a long shot so yeah right. predominantly yeah, yeah. raised in melbourne yep so you were brought you were brought up in a, a religious background shall i say is that, yeah is that so short answer is yes uh dad was a a church minister for many years until he retired and uh mum was the church organist as it was back in the day before things moved to guitars and drums and you know keyboards and everything else so yeah no grew, grew up in a judeo-christian uh environment religious environment for sure yep okay so so obviously that that's your background um so was that sort of inbred into you so when you started going through life yeah i, I think like anything, you you all we all come to a, an existential crossroads at some point where what we have heard, what we've grown up believing, what we've understood to be truth or otherwise, you have to actually engraft it and kind of work it out in your own self. And so I think that certainly um, growing up in that, it does inform the view. It does have an impact on our view. I mean, our, our family of origin always has an impact on our worldview. Uh, but there also comes a point in time where you reach your own reckoning. And I would say that was in my early 20s when I was very, very heavily invested in the business world. 
But my right. background, actually, Andrina, is is my degree is in economics and marketing. Uh, my background is a bachelor of business. I had at one point, I think it was five hundred staff, a turnover of forty million dollars, and I was in my early twenties. And it was just one of those moments where I'd start work at six o'clock, finish at ten o'clock, and you know, you kind of sit there and go, "Is this really what life's meant to be?" Mm. You know, is this the sum of my life, which is chasing money or you know, having big staff or boasting in what I'm achieving. And I think you kind of come back to some of the roots that you're grounded in and realise there's probably a lot more to it than, than you know, this pursuit that I was in at the time. So I think in my early 20s, that was that kind of existential moment of what actually does my life do? What is the purpose of my life? How do I want it to run? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I think we all come to that crossroad at some point for ourselves, even though our upbringing is something. So, yeah. Mm. So... Uh so you're going to have to guide me more than I'm guiding you, I think, with sure. this, because your journey is very different um, in the fact that what you're doing to help people's lives now. Um, and so I know you've got some real heart stories to share. So mm. let's. So when you were 22 or onwards, how did you give up what you were doing then to working along to what you've come to where you are now to this day yeah. in this moment i think the, the so i'll do a little quick bit of history and then kind of pull out a couple of key points if that works okay yeah yeah um, so yeah i was in that zone i uh was married in my mid mid 20s and we had children pretty much straight away and so a bit of my background is we we actually now have six children. Uh, my wife and I, Kirsten, and I have six kids. We've got five boys and one girl. And no, the girl is not the last one. We didn't just keep going until we got it. Uh, my wife always said to me when we were engaged, she said, I want you to know that I, I really believe I'm called to have a large family of six kids. And I went, well, I want two. And here we are with six oh. kids. So what mm. can I tell you? <laughs> this is just where we're at. Um, and people say you must really love kids and I go no I really love my wife but that aside um, <laughs> I love it <laughs> that aside, I think it was kind of in my mid-20s where again I was in the pursuit of the business world I had my own business uh, I was doing those sorts of things and I think by the time I'd hit 30 there's just you know you just realize that your life becomes one big pressure cooker of trying to please people trying to earn enough money all that sort of stuff and I had an opportunity come up to actually join a not-for-profit um, as a as a in a microfinance arena, and so it was about the age of thirty, where you know I'd always had a faith and was involved, but I started working in a not-for-profit with poor people uh, or or the disadvantaged or the disenfranchised in developing nations such as India and Indonesia and so on. Um, and, you know, there's so many stories that I could share just of that space alone of working in the not-for-profit sector, um, which mm -hmm. I did for a few years. And I just think it reshapes your worldview when you actually see that the world is bigger than what you perceive it to be in your kind of narrow band where the world has a lot more challenge, a lot more trauma, a lot more resilience than perhaps mm -hmm. we we often realise it does because our, our frame of reference can be very narrowly banded. And so, you know, I did a lot of work in develop, I did a lot of work for a couple of years in the developing nations. That kind of set me on a new journey and I guess a new enlightenment about what I believe I was built for. Um, uh, you know, there was one particular occasion, if you're okay for me to share a story, there was one particular occasion where we were doing some microfinance work in Kolkata in India 
And, um, you know, we, I, I had the privilege to actually walk through the um, sex trade district of Sonagachi, which is in Kolkata. And as I was walking through that area with one of the guys that was working there, I met some of these extraordinary uh, women who had been sold into slavery from young. And so we spent time talking with them and working with them and 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 just hearing their stories. Because, you know, you said before, everyone's got a story. And I remember on one occasion, it was about 30 degrees and they were all huddled around a little fire because in Sonagachi, 30 is probably a little cool. Um, <laughs> huddled around a little fire. There was a small group of about 10 or 12 women who had who would sell themselves. And again, I don't need to go into the details because I'm not sure your audience Um but in that space, you know, the, the situation had certainly hurt, but they were some of the most generous, uh, beautiful, spirited people I think I'd ever met, Andrina. Like, yeah. it's quite extraordinary that they had nothing and, and, and their life was slavery since a child and abuse and, 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 and but yet there was some intrinsic beauty of humanity that, that those moments where we have such a Western mindset that looks at how beauty should be perceived mm. and how we should understand it. And I think it was one of those moments where I really just felt there's something about this and, and working alongside people, not from a condescending point of view, but from a, how do I, how do I learn from you and you learn from me? Mm -hmm. You know, and that sounds really odd because we think we're coming into that environment to show everything and to teach everything and to fix. But I really learned that our efforts in life and anything that has a spiritual basis to it has to have an element of we learn from each other. This is genuine community. And so I, I'd seen some of the most horrific things um, with natural eyes. You know, when you see things naturally, they are horrific. They, they are undoubtedly and I, I wouldn't seek for one second to diminish the trauma of some of what had happened to to these people to these beautiful women but I woke up at three o'clock the next morning and when I say woke up I was tossing and turning and I just really I just woke up at three o'clock and burst into tears and said you know God whatever you want me to do you just tell me and I'll do it like there's something got to be more than the business pursuit there's got to be more than the you know, the house and the, there's just more to life than this. And it was a spiritual moment for me of just saying, whatever you want, you just tell me what you want me to do and I'm ready to go. And so I think it was the allowance of being in that position, of being in the position where I could confront my own views of my own saviour mentality, my own whatever words you want to use, you know, here comes the hero to fix the situation. It was the opposite. Mm -hmm. It was I learned something in that moment. And it's like, all right, what do you want me to do with this? Um, and I really felt the spirit say, I want you to go to the disempowered, the disenfranchised, and I want you to go to the disabled. Mm -hmm. um, so it was this kind of, these are the people that I want you to help because I want them to understand that that's not how God sees them. Society might see you a certain way, yeah. mm -hmm. but God doesn't. Yeah. You know, so, so it was that kind of three o'clock in the morning you might call it a road to Damascus kind of moment where, where you just you just pulled up and you go, what actually do I want my life to count for? What what is there that bigger calling and that bigger purpose that sits beyond the pursuit of so much and and as I say that sits beyond the understanding, which is a very very 
I don't even know what words to put on it. It's it's almost like a it's a condescending reality where we think we're here to fix you. Mm. I, I tell you, boy, did I learn in the not-for-profit <laughs> sector just on how these things work. It's not how God works and it's not how community works. It's not how humanity works. So, so hey, I've um, got a, yeah, so go like, there was these three Christian fellows who went into Indonesia back in the 70s, I think, or the 80s. And I'm, I'm starting to un- un- ask myself, were you one of these three guys? And they used to go through Indonesia Borneo. And one of the things they used to do is come to a village and ask the, the village, uh, <clears throat> what is it you require? And, of course, that all being taught now to go and get the, um, the rice and all that stuff from the rice companies, which was all being modified or had been, got a higher yield and so forth. But these guys turned around and said, well, have you got anyone from the old days who knows how to harvest the rice itself? And um, and let's flush out your, your rice paddies and let's put fish back into the rice paddies, in which case then they said, well, all you really need is 50 bucks US. And as a consequence, they changed the whole dynamics of that particular village or villages because they now got the fish and they got the rice, their stable diets, without being contaminated by the, all the um, fertilizers and everything else that had gone into the rice fields. There's others who said, no, look, we need sewing machines. Yep. And, of course, the sewing machines were the old treadle ones, which didn't need power. So these three guys have gone through there and done stuff under the name of microfinancing and then come back 12 months later or whatever to take their $50 or $100 US or whatever that was given to them with no interest. And then as a result of it, the Sri Lankan guy who was part of the United Nations, he claimed that he was the instigator and all that stuff. And I thought, yeah, buddy, from the United Nations saying this is hello. And I'm thinking, these three guys <coughs> did a marvellous job and they should get the kudos. I'm, I'm saying the story because were you one of those three guys? Because it sounds no. like you the film so, so the short answer is no, I'm not that old. Um, but and I, and I and I thank you, Jeff, for for thinking I could be. Uh, <laughs> um, but the the founder of the organisation that I used to work for was an Australian guy who did work in Indonesia and actually started microfinance in Indonesia. Because the the thing I love about microfinance is it's actually an empowerment money that that enables you to learn and to recycle money. So, like some of the things that we would do. Uh, things like, for example, um, it's sewing machine, or it might be there was one guy who we did a small loan for for a compressor because he had a tire business where he'd pump up bike tires and he'd do it by hand all day, truck tires and bike tires, and he'd be doing it. So we said, well, listen, if we loan you the money, you buy yourself a compressor, the increase in your income, you'll be able to pay it back. Um, and then that money that you pay back, we can then loan to someone else. So I do, I do know the story you're referring to, Jeff. It's possible it was the founder of the organisation I work for because that's what he did. Uh, and okay. then there was another guy that took it on to the United Nations and, yeah. Mm. yeah. So how do you, coming back into Calcutta with the sex trade, mm. how do you go and change the, the paradigm there? I mean, you can't be St. Teresa there, is it? I mean, what do you do well, there? Well, I think the thing, the thing that I understood is and I'm sure your audience would understand this, everything is spiritual, okay? So in other words, 
you know, mental and physical and emotional and psychological and all these things all sit under what I would call and term an umbrella of spirituality. And so the first thing we've got to do is consider what actually matters in that zone. So when we were in in the the um, sex trade areas of it, the, one of the things that we found was if you take people out, okay? So in other words, what we tend to want to do is we want to save people not only from their future but from their environment. If you take people out of that environment, they had 20 people lined up who'd been sold uh, as young women who'd been sold ready to come straight back in, Okay. So what we said was, no, we actually need to have businesses within that community that demonstrate two things. Number one, they demonstrate to the women, you don't have to be sold and we can actually create businesses within that community um, without judgment, by the way. And, and this is the thing we've got to always got to remember is there's no judgment in any mm -hmm. of this. Like, It's not about coming in and saying, well, you should stop doing that and you're wrong and you're... It, the world is so riddled with judgmentalism at the moment. I mean, spirituality and, and the things of the spirit should actually free us from that system of judgmentalism. Okay, so it's about going into those spaces, Jeff, to answer your question and saying, how do we create businesses within those spaces that do not take people out of those spaces, mm. but rather leave them within their communities to support one another, to raise their families? And so that's the first thing. The second thing that was really profound is, you, you, you've got to create a care system whereby if, if, if a lady who has to work, because remember, there's 20,000, uh, 6,000 women would literally line the streets at night, literally, like shoulder to shoulder along, like we've never seen anything like it. 20,000 men a night would come down there. And again, I want to be careful with the content because it's not, it's not voyeurism that I say this with because, you know, some people can have this poverty voyeurism, so that's not my intention. But I think it's, to give context, you know, it's 25 to 50 cents a trick. You, you're trying to earn $2 a day, but your your daughter's in the background and you're kind of, you've got your mind that I need to work to eat, but I also want to preserve my daughter. So creating childcare in the middle of those environments, creating environments for people to stay within their communities, not create a void that this gets built by another trafficking person, Um but to create the family systems that enabled them to make sure that there wasn't the generational transfer. So it was really about trying to capture and, and prevent generational transfer because that would be the desire of most people. I don't want my kids to go through what I've been through, so how do we do that? So it's childcare, it's businesses within that community, it's community support, and it's, it's things like basic education. If you're taken out of school and sold, it's basic education. So there's a few different strategies that have to play. But the key thing is it's not about trying to get people out. Mm. It's trying to change it from within and, and, and to spiritually say, how do we change this from within? So I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> but I think it really is that how do we actually stay in that space and change it from mm. within? And not because I'm coming in as some saviour to fix it, but because you're raising local people and helping local people to to, to understand and, and I guess do that of themselves. You know, obviously we see that in, um, I saw it in country, well, rural America, but it also see it in rural Australia where the trend there is that young leave the, leave the, the country to come into the city to get the jobs is how do you maintain and, and sustain your country community and provide them with the um, 
the necessary uh, what do you call it infrastructure bright lights the attraction that the cities attract i mean it's, it's something that's been going on for eons isn't it it is and you know i did a lot of work in 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 china uh not through the not-for-profit but in the business world and that was it young people would leave their farming communities to come to where the work was live in massive dormitories like i've seen some enormous dormitories they'd live in send their money back to their family as a way of keeping their family afloat because the honor of parents was very strong in those environments which i i thoroughly respect you know the family unit was strong the cost to the young people was quite extraordinary um and so yeah it's it, it's an interesting one jeff certainly from my limited experience i think to see the lives of people turned around um to see the help that can be brought to people. You know, there was one occasion where I was with a guy again in Sonagachi and, and I'm, I'm really careful because again, we, we ought not to turn this into hero mentality of any form. This is, see, leadership comes through serving. Mm. Leadership is not about dominating. It's about dominion of serving and, and it's how we serve people that actually determines whether we're a leader or not. I think too much of, if I can give a comment, too much of today's leadership is based on what can I get from you? Can I tell you what to do? We've seen that right through the pandemic. We've seen it right through governments around the world. And that's why I think there's such a fracturing of society because society is saying, whatever happened to public servant? You know, it's it's kind of this, what happened to the servant part of public servant? So when we went to this particular uh, situation, there was a, a woman who had had appendicitis uh, and would have to have surgery and if we hadn't kind of got alongside her because she couldn't work, even though she was in the, the sex trade, she couldn't work um, because if she worked, she'd be in too much pain, but by not working, she had no money. So she's kind of stuck. And so I think it's those moments where you just say, you know what, the pure humanity and beauty of humanity says, can I just help you in this moment? Mm. Right. And then what I want you to do is when you're better, move it forward, help somebody else. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me, you don't owe me anything. Just give it forward. Just give it mm -hmm. forward. And that to me is servanthood and that's leadership. And I think that's what the world desperately needs right now. Where is, where are the leaders who serve? Mm. You know, yeah. and that's, that, that's a bit of political commentary. Sorry, I've, <laughs> I've, I've off on one of my hobby horses, but. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. Um, and it, it's like silly things now. I've noticed in different shops, a cup of coffee and they'll put, you know donate a cup of coffee to the next person that hasn't got or you know like shopping i've seen little notes if you can afford or people donate baskets now you know there is more and more there's not enough but it's a stepping stone well i think what we've realized is that the soul of the world is not government mm. it's people mm. you know and i think that the soul and this is the part that i think we've we've just got to come alive to I think government wants to, government is really passionate to try and be the soul of everything, but it's, it's, it's not people are the soul of all of this, you know? And so, you know, I agree with the comment that just came up. We, we do things, you know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, but we do things because it's the right thing to do. Not because I'm going to get something in return. No, that's right. Uh, not because I'm going to set up my future. We, we do it, you know, because this is part of the soul of a community. And I think the community's soul has been zapped. I don't know what the right word is, almost kind of drawn out. The soul's been drawn out because we've turned it into materialism and consumerism mm. and who can get the biggest and who can go the hardest and who can be famous for 15 minutes. 
I've said to I've said to certainly our church and our charity work. I don't care if you never use my name. I don't care. Like this is can't be what this is about. It mm. has to be about the work that we are and the purpose that we are here for. And I think that the soul the soul of the world is in a battle at the moment. Mm. You know, and I'm not trying to be catastrophic or histrionic, but the soul of the world is in a battle. And I think we've got to recapture where the soul comes from. Mm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, with all that's been going on the last couple of years, I mean, there's been a lot of highs and there's been a lot of lows, but I think it's brought so many more people together, sharing, talking and caring. And, you know, you've, you've got to look the, what's brought the best of people out of this what is what has helped people and and there's so much more people talking to the neighbors now and and acknowledging each other and you know talking in the shops whereas before you know people were so busy in their own little world that you know the blinkers were there but now people are, are waking up to there's much more going on in this world um and, and making different choices Oh, no question. And I think we saw that, like where I'm coming from in Melbourne, the most locked down city in the world. Mm. Like we, we, It was only, what, nine months ago that we were in, we were in the worst lockdown, uh, just coming out before Christmas. But, you know, for all of the pain that was in society, and it was enormous, like I'll, I'll share for a moment, if it's okay, about the work that we did during COVID, for example. Mm, all the pain that was in that there was a lot of good that happened in those moments but that good was not and again i'm not anti-government i'm just i'm not giving the government credit for what society did (laughs) so there's a nuance here between being anti-government and just not giving credit for what we saw our community do some extraordinary things just some some purely extraordinary things um you know about um about seven years ago, there's a beautiful river in Mount Beautiful. It's a mud pit, but let's call it beautiful for the purpose of now. Uh, the Yarra River in Melbourne. And I was walking along where I live in Warrandyte, and um, I really felt the Lord speak to me and say, would your community miss your church if it closed? And it's like, of course, you know, we've got music, we've got this, we've got that. And I really felt the Spirit say to me, I'll ask you again, would your community miss you if you closed? I said, yeah, we've got youth programs, we've got this. And it was like, you know, when as a parent you're talking to your kids and they give you the wrong answer the first two times, you ask it a third time, but you slow it down. So it's like, would your community miss you if you're closed? And I said, well, obviously the answer is no. And I really felt the spirit say, I'm giving you five years to reposition it so your community would miss you if you're closed. Because if church is closed, for example, I think communities just go on. Like, Mm-hmm. So, so therefore I kind of go well are we really doing what God called us to do if the community would miss us if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah so we went on a journey of building food security if we want we, we we went on a journey of building disability engagement which again I can touch on uh how do we include young people with disabilities how do we create employment opportunities so we we actually really worked hard to understand what actually was going on with our society, what was going on in that space. Um, how how did, do we as a church serve in that space? And so for five years, we worked really, really hard. And and at the end of five years, it was January 2020. And I, I, I spoke to the spirit and I said, okay, ask me again. And 
it was the same question. And I said, yes, our community would miss us because we had built a food security program that did the equivalent of 8,000 meals per week. That's amazing. Every week. Uh, that's, you know, four and a half ton, one kilogram equals 1.8 meals. And so it was around about 8,000 meals per week, every single week into our local community. We built that. We built uh, pathways for young people with disabilities. In fact, I've just told our church and community arm that I want 20 young people with disabilities employed by the end of 2023, because I think our environments of community and church should be really safe employment environments for young people with disabilities. Um, we built mental health. We triaged mental health. We trained all of our team in mental health first aid from a spiritual worldview. And that was January 2020. And then our prime minister stands up in February 2020 and says, by the way, there's this thing called a pandemic, which I don't think we've ever heard the word pandemic. Certainly, I've never heard the word pandemic in my life. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the pandemic, it's not an endemic. It's not an epidemic. It's a pandemic. I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, and that was the month after five years where I've really felt the spirit say, I'm going to give you five years to position things ready for what I need you to do. And I tell you what, we went to work, like we worked hard and we had, without exaggeration, originally the lockdown was two weeks in Australia. They, they used the term a short, sharp lockdown. I, I almost have PTSD from that moment of a short, <laughs> sharp lockdown kind of makes me jolt a little bit. But what we went into, and again, without making it political, is the most lockdown city for two years. We were in and out of lockdown for two years. Mm. Um, and again, I don't want it to be a political comment, but the damage that that did was extraordinary. Like the mental health issues, the ideation issues. Now, I'm, I'm not running commentary on that other than, but what I also saw was neighbours who began to take care of themselves institutions like ours who had positioned for this. And so we did 8,000 meals a week. Now, here's the thing. In that 8,000 meals a week, we would have people queued all the way. We have seven acres at one of our properties and we had have people queued all the way out our driveway up the street. And these people weren't what you would call the normal people, and I, I use that term carefully, the normal people who need help, right? Because everybody needed help. We had, doc, not doctors, uh, pilots, who suddenly stopped work, no income. Like they're not flying anywhere and they're going, how do I feed my family? I've never been in this position before. I've used up all my savings. How do I? So we had pilots who would be in tears. We had business people, trades people. We had people with long-term disabilities who would drive in our driveway just crying and we would just say, hey, we're here with you. No, we're here. Come, keep coming back. Keep talking to us. Here's our phone number. Keep ringing us. Every time our blessed Premier stood up and announced, you know, more restrictions or something, our phone would go off the hook. Mm. But people just ringing and saying, we just need help. But I saw also a mobilised group of people. And we're not a huge church. We're about 800 to 1,000 people. I saw a mobilised group of people who just went right after it. Like we literally just went right after it and said, tell us how we can help our community through this moment. And I think that's the ethic of mm. how spiritual things should work because spirituality and, the, and and in my frame of reference, the things of God is not a selfish thing. It can't be. Otherwise it's no longer genuine. If that makes sense. Cause if it's, if it's about what I get out of it, it's not genuine mm. spirituality. That's, I don't call it something else. <laughs> but, so what we did is we, we went into feeding people. We went into, um, 
triaging seniors who had been locked into their homes. We got technology to a whole lot of seniors who, so that they could connect with their family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm reminded of the word of words of Martin Luther, who was a great reformer uh, in church history. And Martin Luther once said during a pandemic, the Black Plague, he actually said, he said, you know what, I'll do my best to sanitise, I'll do my best, but if my neighbour is in need, I will go to that person. Mm. And I actually read that quote to our church and said, this is where we're at. If our neighbour is in need, we go to that person and we do whatever is within our power to help them. And so during that journey, we had people with long-term disabilities, people with mental health challenges, all of this sort of thing. We, we worked hard in that space and there's no boast in this. Like, this is not a, a humble brag where you go, look how good we are. No, no, no. Mm did it because it's part of the ethic of what we believe Christ came to do. It's part of the ethic of what it genuinely means to have a call and a purpose that is greater than myself. So between the not-for-profit sector, I kind of I rolled into the leadership in the church and the community sphere, and our community arm uh, is fairly large now, as you see, you know, 8,000 meals a week, 350 to 400,000 meals every year, equivalent. <laughs> it's staggering numbers, and that's all run by a group of people who are motivated by love for their community, by wanting the best for their community, it's motivated by it. Mm. And so it's a long mm. answer to the question, but that that kind of response in a pandemic is very powerful. Mm. And, and we saw, so we're getting... check in on neighbours, young people checking in on old people. Now, my hope, and this is part of the tension of it, my hope is that we learn something from that about what community should look like in the long term. And that now we've turned the tap off of the pandemic, that we don't turn the tap off of what it actually means to be a genuine community. Mm -hmm. So when you were doing all these meals, like you say about your church members, did you, are you were a lot of these volunteers that would come to help most all the time? Yeah. Most of it was done by volunteers, most of it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's hard to understand on an international level. It's hard to understand the sorts of pressure that we worked under during that time with government. Like you had to have a permit to travel more than five kilometres from your home, right? Now, we shake our head at that now, but that was our reality. You had to have permission to do certain things. You could be pulled over by the police. And again, I'm not making political comment or health comment, but the pressure of the moment was very, very real. And so we had teams of administrative people working. We had teams of people serving in the practical side. We had teams of people who would triage hundreds and hundreds of phone calls every week to all of the seniors in our world to make sure they had food because they couldn't go shopping because, of course, the, the the fear that had crept in was if you're an older person, you are, this will kill you. Like that was the level of fear that we had. Uh, and again, not running comment on that other than, you know, you got to make sure that a senior who is of a mindset, if I go outside, I could die. Um, are they being looked after? How's their mental health? How's their emotional health? How's their psychological well-being? And I think all of those things are spiritual because they're all guided by the same spiritual motivation and driving force. Mm. So, yeah, we, we saw a, a lot of volunteers stepping in in so many different areas. And what I think also helped is it gave people a sense of purpose too in those yeah. moments to realise, man, this, this should be normal. See, I'm a firm believer, Andrina and Jeff, that crisis does two things. It accelerates and it reveals, right? So crisis accelerates what was always going to happen. Yeah. 
So businesses that, and I'm not meaning to be disparaging a business, but a lot of businesses that went under, not all of them, but a lot of them probably could have ended up there anyway, or a lot of problems that happen. It accelerates it. But the other thing is it reveals what's really in the heart of society. So crisis reveals things. And I think the crisis that Melbourne went through over the last two years revealed a lot about what sits in our heart. And and there's a lot of challenge there, but boy, there's a lot of good stuff too. Mm. You know? Yeah. In and you must- rules, there's a lot of good stuff that sits within community. And I just hope we, as I said earlier, I hope that we capture that the soul of society is not government, it's community. Mm. Mm. So with all these um, people coming in for meals and what have you, where were you getting all the food from, you know, to feed that volume of people? So we've got four four providers. So there's a thing in, in Australia called Food Bank. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if it's international or not. I, I apologise. But we have Food Bank, Second Bite, Fair Share. And we had a lot of local businesses like local bakeries, uh, local butcher shops who just said, tell us what we can do to contribute to this. So it was really a, <laughs> it was a combination of a large-scale uh, food bank, food security environment. And it was a combination of local community people who said, here we are, give it. And then the other part to it was we had a very strong sense of philanthropic giving within a lot of the business people of our church. And so a lot of our business people just gave. Like they 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 we're talking we're talking donations of fifty to a hundred thousand at a time. They just gave because their 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 capacity to give was there. Um and so I think in that space, it was just the capacity to really think and to mobilize people according to their gift. Mm. So for example, business people, they have a gift of finance. Yeah. And we should we shouldn't be afraid of talking about money. We should say that's your gift. So what I want you to do is this is an opportunity for you to move in your gift. We have people who have a mercy gift. Well then move in your gift. We have people who have a you know a, a leadership gift will move in your gift. And so I think it's that understanding what your gifting is and then channeling that gifting into the moment. And that's really what we saw happen, Andrina. So a lot of it was philanthropic giving from our church people so we could buy stuff. It was food bank, fair share, second bite, all of these organisations that what they do is if something reaches nearly reaches a use-by date instead of throwing it out because the food waste around the world is extraordinary. Oh. Like we could, fix, we could fix world poverty almost overnight with food waste. I agree, definitely. You know, and, and there's that old saying that the seven richest people in our world could fix world hunger overnight. If they chose. The seven richest people could fix world hunger overnight. Mm. It starts with a philosophical shift. And so I think it's that it's that Mm. philosophical shift of don't throw things out, don't go to waste. So what they would do is they would bring it and we would distribute it quickly. Um, Mm. And the team worked very, very hard. And I think it's also part of the heart of our church. Again, if you go back to what I said earlier about the disenfranchised, the disempowered and the disabled, part of it just comes out of as a leader, um, my responsibility is not to run the program. My responsibility is to ensure that the culture and the setting is right for the people who are gifted in that space to do what they are called to do. I don't need to micromanage it. I need to create a culture. And so my work during the last couple of years and leading up to it was to create a culture and an environment in which this stuff can thrive. Mm, mm. So that when it's put to a test, people are ready to go. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. So that would have been run like a military operation. So I know you've yeah. got some 
military background. <laughs> Would you I, like I, to share? I, I wouldn't overstate it, so I wouldn't overstate it. But I, <laughs> um, I serve as a chaplain uh, in the Defence Force in in uh, in Australia. I'm a reservist, so it's part time. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't overstate the military component. But um, you, you certainly have to be organised. Like you, you can't do it if you're not organised and running things well. So, so yeah, I've got a bit of there because we do a lot. Um, uh, you know, in, in Australia at the moment, there is a, a royal commission into veteran suicide and the well-being of veterans and of soldiers and of, of people who go into that space, uh, I think, is particularly important. And so I have a reserve role. Again, I wouldn't overstate it. It's not like I've got a military history where my father was this and my grandfather was this. It was just something I felt called to do. I just think it was something that I felt was important was because I'll answer it this way, Andrina. I think often in life we can end up in our own little bubble. Yeah. All right. Where everyone believes what I believe. Everyone thinks the way I think. <laughs> everyone approaches life with my worldview. So my kids were at the Christian school. I work in a Christian church. My dad was a minister. My father-in-law was a minister. And I think it's really easy to end up in this microcosm that we think is representative of everything. And I'm in this microcosm of everyone agrees with me. Everyone kind of believes what I believe. Everyone sees what I see. And, and so it's like this kind of weird space. And so why I'm saying that is um, I felt that it was important for my own learning and my own understanding to put myself in an environment that sat outside my immediate worldview. To stretch my thinking, to to create a learning, because I think the world is a learning environment, and the moment we stop learning, we stop living. Yeah. And I didn't want to stop learning. I didn't want everybody to agree with me. I wanted people who would challenge my worldview, challenge what I thought, and at least challenge: Can I articulate what I think? If that makes sense. <laughs> so, can I defend? what I believe or have I just grown up with it and therefore that's just yeah. the way I understand it or, or is it actually inherently a core part of what I do and so to me that space of serving in that arena was as much about the credibility of not being in a bubble and I, I encourage everyone listening you know we've got to make sure that we don't land in a bubble where we think everybody agrees with us because <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a really dangerous place to live mm, definitely <laughs> you know um, it's a mentally dangerous place to live yeah and you've touched on um, disability, and yes. I know you've, you've had that touch your life. So would yeah. you like to share more? I, I'm passionate about this space. So our son, uh, Zeke is his name. He has Down syndrome. Uh, he, is, he is not yet verbal, and I use that term deliberately. Um, when he was born, the moment our son was born, he's our fourth child. We knew straight away, or I knew straight away, because he's tongue was sticking out, uh, which is one of the early signs of Down syndrome. And so when Zeke was born, we knew that his name, because the name Zeke means the strength of God, or God will be my strength. And so we didn't know the journey we were in for. Now, our son is not yet verbal. So he turns 18 next month uh, and is a great young man. And what was fascinating to me is our son has never preached in our church. He's never said a word really in our church. Um, but he's taught our church more about the inclusion of God than I think 500 of my sermons every week. Really? Uh, it's quite extraordinary. You know, he, he stands on the front door and hugs and welcomes everybody coming in. Oh, not lovely. Uh, he, he, he just is this extraordinary young man. And one of the things that 
Oh, can I just share a story for a moment about his yeah, yeah. journey? Yeah, yeah, you feel free. One of the things that was amazing to me, I'm conscious I'm talking a lot, but I guess that's why I'm here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but one of the things is he was in the bath. He would have been seven or eight one time, and he was in the bath upstairs, and you have to supervise him because his body wasn't capable. He could fall over, all sorts of things, which you would do with a child anyway. Um, and my daughter called out to us, Mom, Dad, quick, come. And, of course, when you hear that, you're like, uh-oh. So we're running up the stairs at our home. We go bolting in just as my daughter's standing at the the door of the bathroom with this extraordinary smile on her face. And I'm going, well, good. I'm glad you're smiling. Like when you hear this, mom, dad, come here. You're like, whoa. We get there and she said, watch. And so we saw our son sitting in the bath. I can remember it clear as a bell. And he was looking up at the corner of the room and having a full-on conversation with whatever presence, angelic presence, was in the corner of the room. Now, he, he talks complete what we would call gibberish, right? So we there's no English frame. There's no cognizance of the language. He was just, it was extraordinary, Andrew. He was literally sitting there, and he would stop. He'd listen for a response. Then he'd start speaking again. Then he'd stop. He'd listen for a response. And then he'd start laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And then he went into this entire season, which he still does, where he will be lying in bed at night talking. And talking conversation, not just babbling like a, a kid, but talking yeah. conversationally in a language that I don't understand. And I was kind of like, I don't know what to make of that. And I really felt the spirit say to me, I'm not limited by the English language to connect and communicate with people. I can communicate via angels. I can communicate spiritually. Stop projecting your limitations onto mm. your son with a disability. That the only way that you can engage with him the only way you could possibly engage with him would be if, I don't know, how would you put it? If you speak in English, you say these five things, you do these three things, you run these rituals. What I really felt God showed me is I'm not limited to connect with people with disabilities. I don't need the English language. There is a spiritual reality here. And I will talk to him in a way that your limitations of your cognizant ability, mm. and I use that I use that genuinely, like I think sometimes we think we've got it all together and a person with a disability doesn't. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I can articulate things and my son's never spoken. Yeah, but he's had an engagement with God that I will never have. Yeah. And when you were yeah. sharing, um, when you started to say the conversation, I had tingles going up and down my spine then so i knew what you know i knew what you were going to say um that andrew's written a comment i love down syndromers such a such beautiful hearts so yep. i own a disability provider company in brisbane and would be great to connect love if to connect I, with you andrew yeah so we'll sort that up after yeah oh, that's, that's lovely andrew well done yeah. But yeah, no, um, yeah, as soon as you said, I knew, I thought, gosh, <laughs> I knew what you were going to say. And, and that is so beautiful because we, you know, in the past, we've been like, you know, you have to do it this way, da, 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 da. But now the world's your oyster and there's so many different opportunities of doing things differently as long as you're coming from your heart. Yeah. And, and I think the profundity of how profound it is for young people with disabilities. So we, we actually have a program in our church of engaging young people with disabilities because their parents can't bring them to church. Like if you've got a young person with autism, how do you do it? Or how do you come into the community space? How do you include? But I think because 
we have Zeke, it's given me an understanding that perhaps mm. I would have got another way or perhaps I would have never understood. Yeah. Because here's the thing. So, so let me tell this. My father is blind uh, and went blind quite young. My brother a number of years ago was hit by a car and has a brain injury, is in a wheelchair. And my son has Down syndrome, right? And so what people don't understand is I don't regard them according to their ability or disability. Mm. They're my family. So, so when they come to the table, it's not blind dad, it's dad. It's not yeah. brain injured Paul, it's Paul. It's not Down syndrome Zeke, it's Zeke. Yeah. My way of connecting, so I might have to help my dad do certain things because he can't see and I might have to help my brother or I might have to help my son. Like I would have to cut my son's food up because he, he's not quite dexterous enough to do it. But we've got to get away from this mindset that says mm. we, we see people through the filter of a temporary moment called Earth Right. And, and we don't think of things in the scheme of eternity because there is an eternity that transcends this existence. There is a spiritual realm that transcends the existence. And, and I think we're so limited by the five senses that we then regard people that way. Does that make sense? So in other yeah. words, you know, it's my blind... It's not my blind dad. He's my dad. Yeah, yeah. He, he's it's not my dad. He's dad. Dad, your mm. family, you're at the table. And that's what it means when we talk about inclusion, that we don't see according to the five senses or the limitations. We don't see people that way. How do we see them? They're family. We're all one family. Come to the table. Mm. Now, the way Absolutely. I interact with you will have a little bit of difference, like I'll cut his food up or I'll help him. Or, but come to the table. Like, you know, we, we, disability has is a large part of our world. Mm. And so I've spoken at conferences around the world and in Australia on how do we see people who have disabilities. And as I said, we, we want to employ 20 young people by the end of next year, 20 young people with disability. We have a young lady with with um, uh, cystic, no, not cystic fibrosis, sorry. It's just gone out of my head. Anyway, with a, with a form of disability, it's just completely gone out of my head. Anyway, I was talking to her dad. And I said, mate, tell me about your family. He said, oh, I've got my daughter and this is what she does. And she's been trying to find work everywhere. And I said, send it to us. We'll start her with one shift a week. Cerebral palsy. There you go. We'll oh, start yeah. her with one shift a week. And he said, why? I said, because I believe that she has a gift that nobody can recognize because they're assessing her on the basis of what they yeah. perceive the five senses should tell me. Mm. She is working now at the church. In, in meaningful work, because I, and and here's the thing, and we pay her a full rate. We pay her the full rate of pay, and he said, "Oh no, no, no!" Because the law in Australia says you can pay someone with a disability forty percent or thirty percent of a normal person's wage, and I was horrified by that. I said, "I'm not doing that. If she does meaningful work, she gets paid full rate." Mm -hmm. I, you see, because it's all the subtleties too. What we're saying to a person with disability is you're worth 30% of what somebody else is worth. Your work has the value of 50%. But what we're missing is what does she bring to the table? She brings yeah. to the table joy. She brings to the table work. She brings to the table so much more than this limited view of product output. Mm. So so we, we're, I'm passionate about this space because I think God's inclusion of all humanity in his divine plan cannot exclude people groups. 
It can't exclude them on race. It can't exclude them on gender. It can't exclude them on disability. Because if God's ultimate plan is the inclusion of all humanity, surely I'm meant to do that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, um, we had the, the biggest um, event in a cathedral on Saturday. 100,000 people turned up at that cathedral. It was called the Grand Final. The mighty MCG. Exactly right. And I say, I call it the cathedral because it's a major religion, isn't it, in Melbourne, in Victoria? Oh. <laughs> and um, it had to be the grand final. <laughs> exactly right. right. Oh, but, God. <laughs> but, um, Phil's actually revealing what he's come across. But this one gentleman, whose name is Joel Selwood, yeah. he touched everybody's hearts in that 100,000 Colosseum Cathedral. But everybody who was watching that TV, going live all over the world. That young man touched the hearts of so many people simply by three gestures. And one of those gestures <clears throat> was a Down syndrome fellow, and he pulled him out <clears throat> over the actual rail at the finish and brought him down to be part of the whole fraternity because he'd been the water boy for seven years at the Geelong Club. Yep. And then I changed over um, after 6 o'clock to watch it on another s station there, and... The next thing, the actual Channel 7 commentator, he left, left the podium and said, I'm going into the mosh pit to get that water boy. And they brought the water boy back up to be interviewed. And the heart that this young fellow had for Joel was just immense. And I said he did three things. That was one of them. It was just amazing. The second one is he took one of the legends of the Geelong Football Club, a guy called Gary Ablett, his son has a very precocious illness and he grabbed him and took him onto the field to go through the banner to say this is this is something that you can highlight in your life. And the, and the other turning point was in um, receiving the actual grand final medal when he stepped up and the young guy from the Oscar came to give him the medal and put it around his head and he put the cap on it. But he actually gave him his football boots and then he turned the guy around and said, look into the camera and then wave. That guy has built a community spirit in Geelong, in the city of Geelong. And I reckon everybody who's watching it felt it in their heart that they could do the same thing that Joel did. And I have to say, when I was watching that, I had a tear on that. I actually thought he was a very similar, the male version of Princess Di when she was, her funeral concert went down and everybody's throwing flowers onto it. That guy, he's just a living, bloody, amazing gentleman. He's just a humanitarian. It was just so touching. Yeah. Oh, it was beautiful. I know the point you're talking because the young guy with Down syndrome is part of their management team who does, again, the water boy and the towels and all that sort of stuff, but they treated him as an equal. <clears throat> so when they got him over the fence, they said, come on the ground. You should see the look on his face. It was like, I get to run on the ground. And one of the players put his premiership medal around his neck and let him have a run because what they were saying is you are included. Yeah. This is your victory. This is not just our victory. It's your victory. It was a really profound moment. You're right, Jeff. Mm. And yeah. it's in, the, in front of the public as opposed to something that's unseen. So, you know, the gestures that you've done may be unseen, but except for the family members and those members of your church and your faculty. But Joel was really the, the minister of the day. Yeah, it was brilliant. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. mm, wonderful. 
Wow. Well, we're not running out of time, but we're coming near the end of time, if you like, uh, of the show. Um, so is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today um, in any other stories or any words of comfort or... And I can see a little Robin looking at me on the fence here. And his little head's going up and down. <laughs> um, yeah, so is there anything you'd like to uh, finish up on? Yeah, I just think perhaps a, a, an encouragement um, of, a, of one more story, if I can. Our youngest son, Judah, when he was very young, um, contracted an infection that landed him in hospital. Uh, and and we, I basically rushed him into hospital uh, and it was one of those scenes out of a movie. He was only three months old. It was one of those scenes out of a movie. But all of a sudden, <coughs> doctors working everywhere and tubes, and, and, and it was a very confronting thing. And I felt myself kind of pinned up against the wall watching almost this out-of-body experience, watching my son in this extraordinarily traumatic moment. It was, it was something that's very hard to actually describe. And... He went through, we, we were called and told he just needed a little operation, which, you know, fixed, but it, it caused a sepsis within his system, uh, like a blood infection. Mm. Um, we were told probably four times over that journey that he would not live, that he, he would likely die. And I would remember getting calls to come in at night time to say goodbye and all this sort of stuff. But one of the things that was really important is as a three-month-old, I got one of the old iPods mm -hmm. and I put some music into it because the external environment was bells and whistles and machines. And, and I didn't want that getting into his spirit. I didn't want that being what was feeding him as it were. And so one of the things that we did is we, we actually got these tiny little headphones and put them on him while he was lying. And again, without getting too graphic about it, basically he had his stomach hanging in a bag and you know, they were, it was extraordinary, like extraordinary. And we had the music, and I think the thing that I was 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 impressing upon him, and I would encourage everyone, it's it's about how we control and manage what actually gets into our head. Mm -hmm. What do we allow in? Because often we find ourselves in these circumstances where it's just noise and so much noise, the noise of government or the noise of this or the noise of that. And at the end of his journey, I knew at one point the spirit said to my wife and I, we'd been called into a side room to basically be told he won't live. Uh, and that's a very traumatic moment. And for anyone that has been through that, my heart is with you in that. Like that's a that's a very, very traumatic, challenging thing. And And we were called in and I actually stopped the doctor at one point, the surgeon. I said, I need you to stop, doc. And he looked at me. I said, I just need you to stop because there was so much powerful negativity coming across mm, mm. right there was so much verbalization of stuff that it wasn't just me i couldn't handle it I, I didn't think it was producing life because i think there's power in the words that we speak right well, now we either speak life or we speak death every word we speak is either life or death and i just found these words were just like little packets of death coming across the couch at us so I stopped him and I turned to my wife and my wife said to me, he'll live. And I said, yeah, I know. I felt the spirit speak to me and spoke to both of us and said he'll live. But one of the things was at the end of his last surgery, he had nine surgeries in hospital for three months, intensive care for a long time, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of it, I said to the surgeon who's the number one crisis surgeon in the country, I didn't know that at the time. And I said to him, 
On a scale of one to 10, one being minor procedure, 10 being there must be a divine intervention for our son to be alive. I said, I want you to tell me where is it? And he goes, it's eight. He said, but if I'm being truthful, it's 10. There must be some form of divine intervention. There must be something more that intervened in this moment. He said, because from our perspective, we do not understand why your son is alive. Now, I know that's not everybody's journey. We do lose people. I, I understand that. I've lost very close friends to me. But the purpose of sharing that story as an encouragement to people is surround yourself and feed on the things that brings a spirit of life, that bring a spirit of encouragement. And just we've just got to be always be aware of what messages am I letting get into my head and into my heart and what, what am I allowing to get in? And I really felt for our son, we had to, because he couldn't do it, we had to protect him from all of the machines and all of the comments and all of the tears. We had to protect him. And to this day, he is an extraordinary young, he's 13, he's an extraordinary musician, has a love for, for music, and I think it was part of that protective that built something within him. And is one of the most positive, encouraging kids you could ever meet. So I want to encourage, if you're going through a tough time, you know there's that old saying, if you're going through hell, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. We have, we have moments where we go through hell on earth. And if anyone's listening or watching and you're going through a hard time, can I encourage you? And I'm not being flippant with the pain. I'm not being dismissive of the challenge. I'm not being anything other than let me encourage you, feed on the stuff that's going to build you. Mm. Feed on the stuff that's going to speak life because there's so much life and death in the way we speak. So feed on the stuff that's going to be life. And, you know, I think it can help. So my encouragement to everyone is as a community, you are the soul, not government. You are the soul of your community. You are the soul of your world. You are the ones who speak life. And the way we speak life is what do we build up that's coming in? So can I just encourage everybody and finish on this thought? Know what you're feeding on. Know what is nourishing your spiritual walk. Know what is nourishing your soul and guard it. Like guard it fiercely. Fiercely guard that that subconscious perspective because it's out of the subconscious that we speak. Jesus said out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and it's out of that place within us that we speak. So I want to encourage everyone, you know, get around people that build you. Get around people that encourage you like this. Like this is an encouragement for people. And guard your heart above all else. Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart because out of it flow the issues of life. Mm -hmm. So we've got to guard it. So that's that would be my last bit of, I guess, philosophical, theological encouragement, Andrina. Oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know what to say here in a minute. I got to compose myself. <clears throat> um, profound words and wisdom, and it's been an absolute delight for you to share. And keep on doing what you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank you. Oh, it's such an honour to talk with both of you and um, and with your audience. And, you know, the greatest amongst you is the servant of all. So I'm, I'm pleased to be able to, in a small way, serve and, and encourage all of you. So bless you all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's a few comments that's coming up. I'll just grab them. Oh, yeah. Read them out, please. <laughs> um, uh, Andrew, meaningful show. Wish Phil and his community goals bear fruit. Mm. Um, Marlene beautifully said 
and um, Rhonda says thank you very much. Yeah. And that's exactly right, mate. <clears throat> you know. All right. Thank you, Phil. All the best. God bless. Thank you.